0: That's myflexlearning.com forward slash B E. Welcome in everybody for the latest episode of the Authority Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network. We're So pleased to have you here. I'm Ross Romano and my guest today is Dr. Mike Gaskell. He is the principal at Hammershould Middle School in East Brunswick, New Jersey. And he's also been a special educator and assistant principal in Paramus. He also is the host of the Big Ideas and Small Windows Podcast on this very (laughs) network. So we'll pop the link there below so you can check that out as well. Mike is here today to talk about his latest book, Radical Principles, which is published by Rutledge Eye on Education. And Mike, welcome to the show. Ross, it's great to be here with you. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Yeah. So I think before we get right into the book, listeners, Mike's joining us here actually from the airport on his way home <laughs> from the FETC conference. And you know, by the time you're listening to this, it'll be a couple of months post-conference. But while it's fresh in your mind, what's something you, you heard about at the conference or learned about that you want our listeners to hear about?
1: Yeah, sure. So a lot about chat GPT, of course, that seems to be the burning question. And what's really cool about things like this is we have a choice. I think we have to embrace it and make the best of it, or we can fight City Hall. And that's not going to work. So it's here. It's coming. And there's also some ways to teach kids responsibly how to use it. Uh, Is every kid going to use it responsibly? No. cheating has been around since uh, testing has occurred But the kids who are really learning will benefit from this. And I think that just an exciting opportunity to leverage it. Uh, That was one thing. The other thing is just some great people who just share super ideas that I'm taking notes like crazy on my my phone. And just really diving right in with the ability to get some great immersive ideas, which is what I did. A lot of stuff that's mainly the idea that it's automated stuff. When you have AI, let me start that over, okay? So a yeah. lot of the uh, second things that I want to mention are artificial intelligence concepts right on, uh, on our laptop, right on our phones, and the ability to uh, use that for video, audio, interpretation kinds of things. Lots of neat stuff that's coming or is is on its way and becoming a big part of it.
0: Yeah, it's all, I mean, there's some pretty remarkable stuff happening in technology that really has accelerated a lot right, over this past year and saw some good ideas uh, for how teachers can use technologies like Chat GPT to, to make their lives a little bit easier and just try to be creative in a new way. And it makes so much sense to use it with intentionality, to not try to hide from it, to understand that you know kids will figure out ways to use these things. and it has a lot of benefit if we learn how to use it right and yeah, th- those are some good ideas coming out of there. So moving into to your book here I like the fact that in the recent months here on the authority we've had an opportunity to almost start to form our own dictionary of terms around education and leadership. We had Tanya Sheckley on talking about rebel educators and what that is. We talked about what it means to get weird with CJ Cashiata. We defined the term like socks on a rooster with Mike Ficara, And we even talked about de-implementation with Peter DeWitt and how that term, which didn't originate in education, can be utilized in schools. So I want to pose it to you, Mike. Your book is called Radical Principles. So what is a radical principle?
1: All right, so I'm gonna just share something with you that's right in the book and it just sums it all up. And it talks about radical approaches, but keep in mind that these are education leaders and educators applying these principles. So radical approaches are the sorts that are crazy the day before the brilliant. The payoff is enormous, especially for children who are disadvantaged. Students are the real winners of fearlessly radical principles who vigorously and willfully demand equitable opportunities within their school community for all. So that really kind of sums it up. And and the bottom line is, is you need to think about being radical as not being insane, not having a career ending revolution. Instead, what we should be doing is finding ways to work cleverly around some of the challenges that persist in schools. And one of the biggest parts of that has to do with the unintended consequences of bureaucracy. Bureaucracy, We have great roles in schools. We do a great job, you know, setting bells up, telling kids they have to do this, have to be there, and have to follow certain guidelines. We do a great job of that. The problem is some of those systems actually create barriers for the kids who need to be so uh, bridged, so assisted or supported in ways because they're already at a disadvantage. And what ends up happening is, is we end up actually making it worse for them. So I talk a lot about that, and then I, and I unpack it. And then I talk about, more important solutions work around
0: that. In my work, I've collaborated directly with hundreds of educators to support their success. Do you know which of their ed tech frustrations comes up time and again? The sheer number of tools out there and the difficulty of knowing which ones schools like theirs are using to get results. IXL is different. Not only does it perform the functions of dozens of tools, It's currently delivering results for one in four U.S. students, including those in 95 of the top 100 districts. Another major pain point that comes up when a school is excited to implement a new tool, only to find out the teachers hate it. Yikes. It helps to know that IXL is loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, saving them time on prep work while enabling them to better support student learning. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments. And independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? If you have a goal to increase achievement for all students, make sure to find out what iXL can do for you. Visit iXL.com forward slash BE for a demo. That's iXL.com forward slash BE. Yeah, and so this is your third book, I believe. Uh, What what made this one the book for now? Like This uh, came out just a few months ago, so it's pretty fresh off the presses. What what made this the one that you said, I got to write this book and I got to write it now?
1: Yeah, because the one I wrote right before this came out in the fall of 2021, and that one was called Leading Schools to Trauma. And a lot of people might assume I wrote that because of the pandemic, and actually proposed it before the pandemic because everybody knew trauma was rising in kids, and then during the pandemic, it was just took off. So of course, that's a very applicable book, but the radical principles concept really is organized more around, okay, we have problems in schools today, and that's okay. Like Schools can't be great, perfect all the time. We can be good and continue to become uh, greater at what we do, just like great organizations. The great organizations don't sit on the laurels like Amazon and Google and Apple. and you think of any of the successful organizations who have continued to adapt to the realities, and that's what we need to do. We need to adapt to our reality. And a perfect example of that is we can't just say, well, we have uh, schools that do a good job for most kids. That's not okay. You have to find ways to get that support, as I said. And, and this is about an equity gap. We have equity gaps in schools, and they're only increasing. They increased over the pandemic, and now they're just sitting at a too wide a margin. And they've always been there, but there's something that we need to tackle head on. And that's what I got.
0: Yeah. And so, on the point of these equity needs within your school, how do you? Who's involved, number one, in defining your equity goals and the the gaps you're trying to close, the inequities you're trying to disrupt? and, And how do you go about that process of identifying those needs and then the goals you're working toward?
1: I'm so glad you mentioned who's involved because that's such an important question that often either gets overlooked or is minimized. And here's why I would respond in this way. So there are two kinds of leaders generally and of course, they're along the spectrum. There are what we call multiplier leaders, and there are diminished leaders. I'll give you a quick example of each. A diminisher leader is someone who has to always get all the attention dedicated to them. Uh, they're often power hungry. They're highly insecure. They often want to take all the credit. They don't want anybody to appear as intelligent. And, and unfortunately, there's too many darn leaders like that in our world today. And surprisingly, there's more of those kinds of leaders than I'd like to be on like I'd like to admit in education. Mm-hmm. Multiplier leaders are those that run organizations like I mentioned earlier. They continue to accept the fact that they cannot stand alone and they need to organize so many great ideas. The worst thing that can happen in a school is that an excellent idea dies in a corner of that school in a classroom because a teacher either never thought to share it, or more importantly, the educational leaders in that school never thought to promote that. Even though most teachers are very humble and they don't really wanna make a big deal out of something, the way I always get them around that and we be willing to share it is say, look, your idea is impacting kids, but it should be impacting 2000 kids. And would you rather give up on those other, like 1,900 and some odd kids? We need to be able to get that idea out to everybody. And then teachers get it. They go, oh, I want to help kids. That's why I'm here. So it's so important to create teams that feel comfortable with their leader. Humility is a huge part of what I write about because if you're not a humble leader, then people aren't going to be able or willing to approach you and say, I think this is a bad idea you're thinking about, or I think parts of this are a bad idea, or I have a better way to do this thing. And then to, for you to be receptive to that, it doesn't mean you have to take everything and say and run with it. It means that you have to listen to them and then take the parts that continue the sessions and the opportunities available to more your school community. So that's what I talk about. And it's so important to actively pursue that. I was telling you earlier, pre-broadcast, that I have a new school. And when I say that, I mean, it used to be a middle school. Now it's an upper elementary one, grade five school school. And what that did was it gave me 100% new students because of the way the cycles work in our schools. And it also gave me 60% new faculty to me, not new faculty to uh, the school, uh, but new faculty to me. So might've been teaching in another school, but I didn't know more than had of these teachers. And they didn't know that I'm a leader who invites them to criticize me. They didn't know that. They're used to, unfortunately, uh, in many cases, some examples in their experiences of not facing that. Fortunately, in our district, I do think we have more multiplier, but they didn't know me. Who's the real McCoy year, right? So it did take about a marking period, two and a half months for them to say, when's the other shoe going to drop? And I found that the best way to effectively get to know them was to schedule meetings with them directly in, in times and ways that worked for them. And the best part about scheduling those meetings is I don't do those in the principal's office or some busy big conference room. that. Looks intimidating, I go to their classroom and say, what's the best classroom? What's the most central located? Because I want them to know that their time and space this is as important as mine or more, and that I need to engage in that way. So I'm seeing a lot of that start to turn as previous faculties have, that they know they can come to me in a loving way and say, Mike, this is a bad idea, or I have a better way to do this thing that I think is great. And so that's the kind of freedom that a multiplier leader provides. And their staff needs to get to know that they can come to me. This also works, of course, with students. Mm -hmm. Students have great ideas that we often either say, well, that'll never work, right? Because of the following bureaucratic limits, right? We have to stop saying that. And we have to figure out ways to bring that in. I do that and I unpack a lot of the ideas in the book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So you mentioned, you talked about the multiplier leaders and you also write about you know, the concept of diminishers, you know, which could be applied to people, but it could also be practices. It could be your resources, right? What are we spending our time and, and money and effort and our passion on, right? And are they the things that are in fact multiplying and helping us work toward our objectives or are they taking us further away from them? Or are we putting too much effort into this one thing that's just not really returning returning any results, you know, and when it comes to figuring out, okay, who's this team of people that are going to be these multipliers that are really going to lead us to outcomes that are greater than the the sum of our individual parts. One of the things that's interesting, one, it's really important to probably have that framework to go into it and say, look, as a multiplier leader, I need to go in and kind of see who's going to be around me, who's going to work towards this, who are going to be the other multipliers that, you know, really create Uh, exponential value here and I the multiplier leader probably much better at at doing that because it feels to me that if you're not a multiplier leader you probably feel like everybody's a diminisher because anything that's not 100% aligned with what you want is going to you're going to say that well this is this is detrimental versus seeing it as okay we all really have different ideas different areas of strength different experience and we need to kind of work together but you know talk a little bit about just kind of through that mental framework of saying okay. If we want to be successful towards these goals, we need to identify, importantly, who and what are the multipliers and the diminishers and and make the right choices about how we build our teams and how we build our, our practices.
1: Yeah, this is the power of exponential thought, right? So two good ideas can multiply out into maybe five new things or something like that. And it's this whole idea, and I'm not using perfect math, of course, here, but the idea is that, when you bring multipliers together, you're actually really invigorating opportunities that go beyond just the ideas those two people had. Because suddenly you start creating new ideas and it becomes this, like I said, compound effect or exponential thing. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier is is timing all that, right? I definitely want to hit on timing because timing is such a huge part of this because one of the first reactions an educational leader or, or educator who's listening to podcasts might think is, yeah, but I don't have the time to do all that. Like, I just need to react and put out fires. And that's that's what my day's like. And unfortunately, that happens all too often. And it seems to happen more than, than previously because we're in a fast-paced, social media-driven world. One of the things that I have to stress on this is you can manage your time better and then become more radical in your approaches, like being a multiplier leader. So for instance, if you understand the way that, timing works, and you understand how your, your personal schedule works. Dan Pink is an author who talks about this in a book called When, and he did tons of research before he, he wrote this. He does a good job. I like to follow his style, leaving science and story together. So I'll tell you some stories then I'll back it up with science that right. just makes sense. So when he looked at this, he realized that people run through these cyclical patterns during the course of the, every day, and they're surprisingly predictable. And understanding that and knowing how you function allows you to deal with that so i'll give you a couple of really quick examples one of the worst things that we can do is first thing in the morning do what just about all of us do go for our phone and start reading emails and things like that especially in education because we often get like emails from upset like parents or this last minute thing has to be done or you feel so rough. and it's much more powerful if we can manage this to use that first time in the morning as a treasure, as a creativity moment. So I often personally go exercise during this time because now I'm also moving uh, the body, which means I'm moving the mind because once I start moving and blood is moving through, it's rushing to my brain as well and affecting all that. And what's so exciting about that is I actually do some of my emotional writing when I'm exercising and I've got my phone with me and I pour out my notepad and I start jotting down idea because the creativity juices start flowing. And I preserve that time away from looking at things like email or any of those other things that are going to you know, completely disrupt me and my train of thought. Because what happens is, is you go from a potentially very creative time mode when you wake up first thing in the morning to this primal mentality that goes right to our fight, flight, or uh, run. Is a fight, flight. There's always the, I forget the third one. but so you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. prime, Fight, flight, light. or freeze. Freeze, thank you. Yeah. I just froze. Fight, flight, or freeze. We become, we go right to the more primal states of our brain. And now we're not being radical because we can't be creative. Mm-hmm. So we have to preserve those times. Now, some people on this, that are listening might say, yeah, but I'm a night out. That's great. He talks about that too, Dan Thing. He, he unpacks that and says, okay, know the times in your day. And I actually share a quick survey that shows when you know how to manage your time. And it just basically says, it, it encapsulates it for you and says, use this time wisely. So that's why I'm focusing so much on time because it's so typical for educational leaders and, and educators to get caught up, swept up in this time wave that feels like it's too disruptive. And I'll give you another quick example. I call them email wars. And this is, and it could be an email or it could be social media, it doesn't matter. And email wars are when you get that really angry, somewhat irrational, usually factually inaccurate email from either a parent or somebody that's that's upset about something that happened, either with their kid or whatever, right? And you know it's inaccurate. So the worst thing we can do is get defensive and write an email back. is what happens next. The emails start escalating. And they start pulling things out of context. And unfortunately, with digital communication, we're thinking about things in a two-dimensional framework. We're three-dimensional human beings. We have emotions, intonation, and our delivery is different. So people start to dehumanize when they're reading this stuff and they start misinterpreting everything. I saw a study once that showed 7% as effective as talking through things. That's Even if that's highly inaccurate, it's definitely got the right ideas. And by the way, they did back it up in science. So you can Google that, email 7% as effective as, as talking. And it's so important for us to remember that because what we want to do is something that Jade Bear from 100 Haters calls reply only twice. I love this concept and bases it on customer service. Aren't we a customer service business working with families in our community? So when you get that angry email, what you wanna do is say, I'm really sorry that you are upset about this and I'd like to talk to you about this. When is a good time to talk? If the follow-up email for that becomes something even angrier or more escalated, which by the way, it almost never does. But when it does, now we're really unprepared because what do we do? And they start making claims and, no, I'm really mad and, and this whole thing. You have to remember that this thing can be exposed on social media. They can take a screenshot. This is what people do and say, look at this t- principal did. Look how moody was. And instead, what you do is say, again, I want to take the time with you to talk about this more personally so I can help you. Nobody needs to worry about how that would look online because that looks like you took higher moral ground and you're able to do that and save face. And what's so great about that is that if that person continues to escalate, you can cease the conversation. That's the concept of reply only twice, because you have set the stage and you put your beliefs out in front of them. And this is how we talk to each other. We talk in person, we talk respect to each other, because this is your school and you want them to emulate that if they choose. By the way, most people will take the time to say, wow, they're going to talk to me personally. Instead, that's wonderful. I'm really happy about that. And I want to I want to take advantage of that. And they're already more satisfied as they get the door open. You say, Hey, let's talk. This is important. We don't want to rush this through an email or misunderstanding. And so I always tell people, don't get in these crazy email threads that are back and forth and back and forth. I always say to a parent, when can I call you? Now some people may say, Well, the, the call is going to take more time. That's completely categorically false because think about those email words back and forth. And the worst is every time. You send an email, you're anticipating the next angry one, and your brain's back in that primal space. So you gotta get people offline. And that's what Jay Bear talks about with with social media, not just email, but social media communication too. You may wind up with somebody trying to communicate with you on Facebook or anywhere. This how this procedure or this strategy works anywhere you're on digital.
0: Right. And something relevant to think about is that Jay Bear with the reply only twice, you know, model advisement there. It's premised on the fact that those people you're replying to are your important customers, your important stakeholders, right? So it's not something where it's saying like, "Uh, just tune out the noise, don't worry. It's saying, all right, it's important for you to engage with these people, but to do it productively and to have a plan to do that, right? Because otherwise in the moment you either get distracted or you're stressed or and you kind of lose control of the situation versus saying, I, I have a specific approach, I'm going to replicate it and we're going to engage productively because ultimately it's important that we come to an understanding and a resolution and we can't let it get away from us. And in digital means, no matter what it is, whether people are acting in good faith or bad faith or whatever, it's way too easy for things to be misconstrued, taken out of context, to have every now and then it, it gives your counterpart, right, the opportunity to reflect on, okay, maybe I made some assumptions when I sent this initial email, right? because the person replied to me and they said they'd be happy to talk to me. And I, I was expecting them to be defensive and they're not. So maybe I was assuming the way they were going to respond and that affected my tone when I sent them the message in the first place. So it's kind of saying, all right, it's emotions are high when we're talking about kids and their education and their future and parents. There's a lot of dynamics going on here and, and it's just important to say we need to get Where we need to get to and not dig deeper into a hole. (laughs) So, something good to think about there. One thing that I did want to touch on is that kind of the subtitle for the book is a blueprint for long term equity and stability at school. And that jumped out at me because it made me want to ask you how do those ideas go together? Right? Because to me, and I'm sure it makes sense to you, but that equity piece is about being. Destabilizing, right? The status quo, destabilizing inequities that have been baked in, and saying, "Hey, this—we can't just keep going on the way we have been, right?" Now we don't want it to feel like everybody's standing on these little blocks of ice, trying trying not to fall into the frozen ocean, kind of thing. But, but it's it's all it's about saying, "Look, it's not good enough to just kind of go along to get along, it's smooth sailing because there's all these things." underneath the surface or above the surface, but depending on your school, that if we're not thinking about what are our blind spots, what are our maybe unintentional or unintended biases in the areas that we're not paying enough attention to, things might just kind of seem fine. And that's where we need to be really taking strides to to destabilize that dynamic, right? So I kind of wanted to just get your thoughts on that and just sort of how you are going for those parallel goals, right? Of like saying, okay, we need to really make these efforts to improve equity, but we also want to create an environment that feels solid. It has that stability that we want in a school, reliable, trustworthy to our stakeholders and so on.
1: Yeah. I love the way you said subconscious or unconscious biases. That's a big part of what has to be overturned. We're all good people who care about kids, but we come with those biases. That's not something to be upset about but it's something to be aware about so because if we're aware of it we can start to override those things that are preventing us from giving the support to the kids that need it so I, i think the best way to characterize this is a story from the book i'll just tell you this real quick so a few years ago my superintendent came to me and he said i need to move the entire preschool program which is about 200 kids into your school and i said well i don't have room for that he said We have to move it into the school. So I said, okay, boss. And I had to figure out how to move these 200 kids into my school, which were completely unrelated to the rest of my school. So I figured this out somehow. And when we moved them into the school, I decided to make lemonade out of lemons. And what I did was, because it was a disruption, it uh, it was overcrowding our school, it was creating some other obstacles. But I thought to myself, I've got a resource here that I should probably take advantage of. So there was a kid named Chris, a pseudoname, by the way, and he was the kind of kid who was about six feet tall in seventh grade. He ran too fast down the hall and he talked too loud. And sometimes I'd walk down the hall and see a teacher waving a finger at him in the corner as he, over, as he stood over them. Wow. Uh, Chris was not progressing with that. And that's not that teacher's fault. That teacher was doing the best they thought they could. So what I did was, and I stole this idea from the assistant principal. We talked about multiplier effect. This is not my idea, but it, it grew from this, right? She suggested, why don't we ask him to go in and read to the little kids if, if he can improve his behavior? So I thought, why not? We, what else are we going to do? We have teachers running up to us and saying, this kid needs to be suspended and the whole nine yards, right? And, and by the way, suspension has no positive effect on any child who's suspended and worse has a negative effect on the kids around him or her. So people don't necessarily know that or realize that, but when we're suspending a kid, we're creating a more toxic climate for everybody. So I went up to this kid and I thought, he's going to think I'm crazy, but I, I've asked crazy questions. And I said, if you have a good week in school, would you be willing to read to the preschoolers? And I thought he was going to say, you're crazy, Gaspar, what are you, what are you talking about? And instead he smiled ear to ear and said, I would love to do that. I said, okay. He had a good week because he was motivated, a good enough week, and we brought him in to read to these three-year-olds. Now, here's the great thing about three-year-olds: it's like pet therapy, right? Because you feel great with their excitement, their their passion, and they don't see a six-foot-tall African-American disadvantaged child. They don't see that that runs too fast on the hall and talks too loud. Well. What they see is an older child reading a book to them that they love and zero. They were asking him when he was coming back to read and born was middles to littles in my school we created a program i wrote a grant i got t-shirts and suddenly the other kids were running up to me and saying when can i read and i said you have to have a good week and these were the cool kids these were the cool kids so it became cool to do this and all because of chris who was a Mm well-liked kid the second part to this that was even more powerful was that you had teachers who were going up to him when he was running too fast now and without even realizing it, saying to him, when are you reading next? And he'd say, oh, I'm supposed to read on Tuesday. And suddenly he stopped running too fast. They never addressed the issue with him. They didn't back him into a corner. Instead they redirected him. And they came to me later and said, I never thought this program would work. I thought we were crazy. This is amazing. He's not running in the halls or at least when I talk to him, he's listening now instead of giving me a dirty line. And so, we started doing this with other kids. This became a culture shift. And you talked about equity and stability at the same time. Isn't this happening in a scenario like this? Right. So this is not one silver bullet, and it doesn't work for every kid all the time. You'll never hear me say, there's a solution, and this is how you should do it for the kid. What you will hear me say is, here's seven or 19 ideas. Try 12 or three of them. And maybe a handful of those ideas will work for these kids and another handful of ideas will work for this, and this kid. Who cares? The point is stack your ideas, consolidate them and throw them out at kids. Be flexible, be adaptive. You can't just say, we're gonna keep doing these same things in schools. You gotta say, let's try this, that and the other thing. And by the way, this program got so much attention that the commissioner of education joined my superintendent and went and watched one of these in, in progress. And celebrated with, this was, I mean, the chemistry of education is like the right-hand man or woman of the the governor in the state of New Jersey. So this is a really exciting thing when you think about it, because now it's getting all this promotion, but it's like any great idea. I would never sit there and say to you, this should be applied for every kid who's disadvantaged or every kid who's struggling at anything, right? Instead, what I I would say to you, this is one of nine ideas I try. And maybe four or five of those nine ideas will, will work. That's my point.
0: And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor, MyFlex Learning. Let's talk about flex time in schools. The potential benefits to our students make it totally worth exploring. There's more time for personalized learning, increased choice and agency for students and the increased engagement that comes along with it, dedicated time for intervention, and overall as school leaders, it provides you and your faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be a challenge. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold you back from ensuring students make good use of their time. That's why I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with the seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. If you want to see for yourself, visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE. You'll learn all about My Flex Learning, what it can do for your school, and you'll receive a $500 off offer for your first year. Check it out. And so part of that, right, was was starting it and saying, yeah, right. Like you said, like, let's come up with as many ideas as we can. Let's try some of them. Some will work, some won't. But we have to be motivated to just give it a shot and be okay with that. Be okay with that. Not every one of them is going to turn out to work the way we hope. So there's starting and then there's sustaining. Right? So, you know, I think there's a lot in the book about mindsets and kind of just the, the mentalities that you're taking and. And I, part of that is to start and sustain the work. So, kind of, what are some of those mindsets, those views? You know, we can put it pretty much. We could we could look at our principals and assistant principals, right, who are um, most in position to start these things, and then to yeah. say, okay, I need to be in the mindset to be this radical principal to to pursue these goals.
1: Yeah, So there's a couple different things that I'll that I'll point out. One is Adam Grant wrote a book of, about the concepts of an open mindset and he does a lot of awesome uh, social scientists or a psychologist, and he has written a lot about being you know open we talked about this before with the multiplier leader but more specifically an open mindset means that again we go back to subconscious biases not assuming that you are all known or you have all the answers right and an important part to this is we know that When an idea is challenged, we shouldn't just say that's wrong and I'm right. One of the challenges we face today, I think everybody can acknowledge, this, is that we live in a very polarized political world and polarization doesn't help anybody. Uh, What we need to do instead is not necessarily agree with, but accept what another person's position is. And there's a difference there. And when we learn to do that, it's a really important concept. I'll tell you a real uh, quick true story that I found online and it's about this concept of lateral thinking. So there was this kid, and he's driving with his dad, and suddenly they get backed up in this huge traffic jam. So they walk up to the front of this because it's taking forever. They want to see what's happening. And there is a Mack truck, a big truck, wedged under a bridge. It obviously was the driver who didn't pay attention to the dimensions of the bridge. And you have the police up there, and you have like experts that trying to make suggestions. And they're saying, well, if we push it through or maybe we back it up, how much damage will we create for the infrastructure bridge and and the truck? And what are some of the things? Can we kind of push the bridge up a little bit with a a vice or something? And in the end, there's this kid who's next to his dad and he keeps saying, hey, dad, hey, dad. And the the dad says, hang on a second, hang on a second. And he's trying to listen to what's going on. And finally, the kid says, dad, I, I have an idea. So the guy says, what? And the kid says, why don't they just let the air out of the tires? And it was like, "Yeah, right. had all these experts, right? So here's the point. When we become masters at something, like you and I are masters generally in education and educational leadership. When we become masters at something, we start to exclude the possibilities that aren't in that mastery inventory. And that's mm-hmm. all part of a natural thing that our brain does. If we open our mind and do this in a conscious way, we can really start to make that shift happen. So that's why I wanted to share the story about about lateral thinking and and the, the nine year old kid at the bridge. I mean, he was thinking laterally or alternatively, right? And so a lot of times kids, we, we're educators, we know this, come up with great ideas that I never would have would have thought of. And so it's not just kids, of course, it's anybody. But this story was about a kid, which I had to share it because we're in
0: right. education. Yeah, no, that's a that's an excellent example of the the concept that when we, once we know how something is supposed to work <laughs> we we sometimes are blind to exactly the, the cases where it's not going to work that way and right. where somebody who's starting from scratch or trying to problem solve is going to come up with a different solution that works in those cases where things just aren't going to go the, the typical way so So one of the things that you, you write about there, there, that was a quick fix that that kid came up with. You write about how the, there's these day-to-day quick fixes that happen. They need to happen, right? Something comes up, we have to solve it, but that there can also be times where getting into the habit of those quick fixes can prevent the long-term change that we want to work toward. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, I think that applies as well to, to kind of the mindsets, right? And having those planes toward your goals and saying, all right, we do need to spend time and attention on some things other than just this big picture, long-term goal. However, not let it derail us. How do those kind of work together?
1: Yeah, so I think when you have quick fixes, they can become like the instance silver bullet and we mistake I talked about the teacher with the great idea in the corner of the school that will die there if it never gets out mm-hmm. we can't we can't let those things go a good example of this is you know I'll do something I call an ed camp which ed camps are pretty well known by now these are these great informal like PD sessions where people just bring their own ideas and share out you kind of have like these walk-up sessions and you can just pick the session you want to go to and get these ideas shared out well, my faculty has great ideas, so I encourage them to to have an ed camp every year where they bring their ideas. And what's so amazing about these ed camps? So remember, these are not my ideas; these are their ideas. Right? Is number one, they feel empowered; they feel excited, and teachers respect hearing from other teachers too, many times more so than than me. Right? Because I'm not in the classroom every day, so I love engaging this. But additionally, what's so great about that is When you have an ed camp like this, what I find happens most often is cross-departmental people who never run into each other, let's say a science teacher and a phys ed teacher or something like that. They may never run into each other in meetings or discussion groups, professional development. We're all in a hurry, just trying to get to the next meeting. Bringing them together in this kind of format and then sharing those ideas, most frequently what happens is the feedback is, I never knew about this idea. Because it was from this other department or this, up, this person in another subject area. And now I can use that in a way. And then they start sharing ideas out in their way that becomes an adaptive version of that. So we talked about that, this whole exponential thing. And so we're sharing these ideas that allow us to start planning things that are not just quick fixes, but are building into this long term solution. I think that's the important message there
0: right yeah excellent and and we also we don't want to i think confuse those quick fixes with small wins right <laughs> there can oh, be times can where those things feel, feel oh, almost did, yeah. the same or we might overlook or say, okay, we don't wanna get in the habit of just doing a bunch of little things, but at the same time, we wanna recognize and appreciate when we do solve something, when we have those little wins. And and so how about the power of small wins and how does that fit into this mix?
1: Yeah, so the interesting thing about um, power of small wins is this like so many great ideas has been a successful concept outside of education. And we often don't hear about these things or way down the road, uh, when Not that it's too late, but it's, it just took too long. So I try to bring ideas like this. Uh, there was a Harvard uh, study where they looked at the successes of companies. And again, I talked earlier about these successful organizations and why are they so successful? And over and over again, what they kept coming up with was these companies were celebrating their performance, which in our case were kids, with small wins. They were recognizing these micro victories that they were achieving, not just the big long-term thing, but they were stopping and paying attention. This kind of, and this is, what is this? This is feedback in education, Mm -hmm. right? If we're able to show kids, we can do this verbally, we can do this in multiple ways, that they were here at their reading level, and they've moved up to this many spaces, three spaces in three months, even if they should have moved up five spaces, who cares? show them the growth that they've made, this is a very empowering and psychologically powerful way to get kids to move forward. And by the way, it's also great for adults because we have adults that need some positive feedback in our schools too, don't we? Because they're going in classes every day and trying to build up kids. So it's so important for us to take a moment and say, wait a minute, power of small wins, big deal. So I did a lot of research on this and I was so surprised to find that I, I couldn't find the concept of small wins anywhere. So what did I do? I started writing about it. And I've written articles about it. And and of course, it's in radical principle. So how the small win concept is so significant. And it's often missed because, as you said, we're trying to do these uh, short, quick fixes instead of stopping for a moment and saying, wait a minute, did you see what you just did today? I'll just tie this real quickly into something else. And that's the praise to criticism ratio. So think about praise. It has to be authentic. It should not. This guy named Bissell wrote about the five elements of praise, and one of them was authenticity. So, I'll give you an example. Kid comes in, or you had a good class, you say, Great job, everybody. That doesn't tell anybody anything other than that you were happy with them, right? It doesn't tell them something specific that they can grab a hold of and feel that small win. So, when we're giving praise, we should say, I really like the way you were able to complete three out of those four problems, right? And the other thing is, is, there was this guy, John Gottman, who's a psychologist that studied successful married couples. That's an important topic, right? When 50% right. of our couples are failing. And what he wanted to know is what's working in these marriages that's not working in unsuccessful marriage. And what he found was the ratio of praise to criticism in these marriages was three praises to one criticism, or higher, okay? So by the way, there was a point of diminished return. You couldn't keep praising somebody. People would realize that's BS. If you go like 15 to 1, I think the cutoff was 13, 13 to 1, but you know, three to five to one. And so PBIS, which is a you know, national program that talks about positive behavior in schools, has great videos on this that show teachers doing this. So what do we do? We decided, we did decide in, in many schools that use PBIS or PBSIS in New Jersey. Same concept. To bring this into our classrooms. And they were actually showing even more success with kids than they were with successful marriages. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, thinking about feedbacks and building kids up, this is more important than ever because kids are coming out of a post pandemic where they're often traumatized, they face a lot of social media negative exposure, and just, it just seems like things are tougher, right? It's so important for them to, hi- to highlight to them the reality, which is there are a lot of small successes and you need to be rewarded for it, which in turn makes them wanna go further. Think about that like when you're uh, trying to achieve a task or a goal, oftentimes you say, well, I'll just spend 20 minutes on this. But when you feel the success of that, you're gonna push that to 30 and you're gonna keep going. So there's these right. ideas that kids wanna keep going, not necessarily in minutes, but just longitudinally as you talked about over time, to pursue a goal because Rome wasn't built in a day, and we often think about it's a big victory at the end. That's great, but that's an unrealistic way to think about success.
0: Right, successful and it seems people a, a, like a resistance to celebrating small wins would come from a mis understanding of motivation right and thinking well if we just praise people for every little thing then they're going to stop working hard versus saying no you're allowing them to see that they're making progress to see that somebody's aware of them it can be done as appropriate in your reference to the married couples if you know this this one spouse does the dishes or something it can be thank you it doesn't have to be right comparing Little it to thing. the lunar landing but it could just be <laughs> saying oh thanks for doing that that was really helpful right and it's just saying all right well now i'll, I'll do it again tomorrow because the i reinforce. know that it wasn't in vain right
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah yeah and then and the other piece of that being right let's not see those successes as temporary see them as part of a trajectory, see them as incremental building blocks and not like, okay, if you did this one thing, okay, it worked today and you know, okay, but that's yeah. it's one step to the next thing, you know, and it's particularly with students to, to be much more focused on what, what learning trajectory are they on versus what grade, what's their GPA or anything like that but are they growing are they learning do they know more today than they knew yesterday do they have a new skill do they feel better about what they're doing and yeah and it really is is that powerful thing and and it's it's a motivator so we're kind of winding down here but one thing that i definitely wanted to bring up before we close with reference to the book is making time for restoration this is a lot of work it's hard work it's <laughs> it's daily work it's consistent so how do leaders kind of make that time to, to make sure they are restored, re-energized, and, and not burning out all of their energy when they kind of need to replenish.
1: Yeah, it's such an important thing, right? Because it's literally our bodies and our minds are just like the phone that's dying. We need to recharge. We need to be regenerated. We're just going to pan out, right? And one of the things that I talk about in the book is there's some important practices we should be applying. To ensure that we're taking care of ourselves because we can't be that radical principle if we're coming in exhausted and reacting all the time so we do need to take that time for ourselves and there's some simple practices i talk about breath work which is pretty well known in the field by now but i specify one called the 478 method and the the reason that i like the 478 method is because you're breathing in for four seconds you're holding for seven and then you're letting out for eight seconds so there's a differential there what that differential does is it literally massages your diaphragm. It has a very therapeutic effect on your internal body space, which of course tied right to you. And this can be a very quick thing that can happen. Right at your desk, five minutes, the impact is recognized. So that's what, and the great thing about breath work, of course, is that it's, you bring it with you everywhere. So you don't need to go track this down or really pretty much do this anywhere because as long as you're not in the middle of obviously having a discussion or something. But this is really helpful when you're having those really taxing moments. Another example is something I call binaural beats. So binaural beats are not well-known. I just presented about this uh, at the Radical Principles presentation here at FETC. And it was really interesting because I asked my audience, does any of you know what this is? Have you heard of this? And not a single hand went up. And I continue to see that. Uh, until somebody hears me or reads my book. And then they realize, oh, this is really cool. So let me just tell you really quickly how this works and and then why it can be so helpful. So when you're listening with headphones, with binaural beats, you have one tone at a certain frequency in, in one ear and a different tone at a different frequency in the other ear. You can find binaural beats, by the way, anywhere. YouTube, you can Google it, they're everywhere. And so it's all free. And what's happening is because they're at different frequencies, your brain starts to interpret, after about three to five minutes, by the way, it doesn't happen right away, a virtual third sound. That third sound sounds sci-fi, I know, but that's Mm -hmm. what's so cool about it because it really works and we know from science. That third sound starts to target parts of your brain that affect everything from, and you can select different kinds of binaural beats, and you can Google this, relaxation, so that it gets you in a more calm state. You can do a a high focus one and concentration so that it gets you focused on a task. You can get a motivational one. You can get a pre-workout binaural beat. (laughs) And so there's all these different options that you can navigate through. And in in the example you were using, restoration, that's a perfect example of a binaural beat that gets you in a very relaxed and sort of mindful state. As I said, it only takes about three or five minutes before it starts to work, and then you need to give it at least five more minutes. realistically 10 minutes, but that's another really cool one. And the nice thing about binaural beats is you almost have the menu to select from. What do I want to focus on? I want to be focused. I want to be energized. I want to be motivated. I want to be relaxed. And as I said, you can go right on YouTube or Google and and find the different options. My recommendation when you search is to make sure that it it appears to be a science-based one, because I don't want you to just go to like a random one that someone claims is a binaural beat and make sure you have your headphones in
0: Yeah, excellent. Well, Mike and listeners, we mentioned that uh, Mike has his podcast, Big Ideas and Small Windows. Um, Season two of that will be launching right around the time this episode publishes. So if you head over there and subscribe, you'll hear some new episodes. Uh, Mike, can you give us a preview of anything that's upcoming on the podcast and also anywhere else that listeners should connect with you?
1: Yeah, so I'll be talking about some other topics in my writings. I write monthly uh, for Smart Reef, and that always ends up in ASC Smart Reef, if you're familiar with that. I have a monthly column and I like to take those ideas and turn them into a discussion format because some people just want to listen to, on their ride-in, to work or whatever. So I'm going to make sure that I'm going to be unpacking those ideas and articles right on my podcast.
0: Excellent. Well, Mike Gaskell, thanks so much for being on the authority. Listeners, find the link below to Radical Principles, the book. You can purchase it, hear a lot more about all of these ideas. We'll also link to Mike's podcast. We'll check out some other resources that are there for you. So check all of that out. And please do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews or visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our network shows. Mike, thanks again.
1: Thanks, Ross. I appreciate it.
0: This has been the Authority Podcast, hosted by Ross Romano, edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.